Um, last week we started part one of three parts and looking at First Timothy chapter three, verse one to seven, and, and two weeks are going to be dealing with some information that Paul assumes all of his readers already know about, and we don't because those terms aren't completely familiar to us in our context. It is so easy. Uh, Paul has written 1 Timothy and his purpose is in 1 Timothy three fourteen and 15 when he says he's written so that he would know if he is delayed how one ought to behave in the household of God which is a pillar and buttress of, a, which, of the church of God, the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so in a context in which... Um, Business models of leadership have a tendency to be superimposed on top of the church. It may feel a little unspiritual to walk through the technical details of the way God has appointed order in His church. As I said last week, I'm not going to apologize for this tone, or fe- tone is the wrong word, the feel of a lecture feel to this talk because it, it feels very lectury. Um, and, and, I, and, and it's pretty important, though, that we see all of these texts to understand the terminology Paul gives here in 1 Timothy 3, 1, when he says, that the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And so we've spent a lot of time last week unpacking every place these terms, overseer, show up in the biblical text. We're going to finish that today, and the next week we'll actually exegete verse 1 to 7 in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So it's pretty important. It may feel unspiritual. But in fact, if we are to know how we are to behave in the church of the living God, which is a pillar and buttress of the truth, then God's good order of leadership matters. Would you not agree? And I think, therefore, we need to not overlook it, but drill down on it. One good point that Emmett brought up to me this week that's super important for me to remember, and I'm thankful for this, is uh, some of you guys who know me know this. Those of you who don't know me don't know this. I'm a passionate person. And when I get my teeth into something, I drill down, and it may come off as, God, he's angry. I'm not angry. I'm passionate. If you really get to know me, you'll discover I'm mildly inappropriate. Um redneck, educated redneck, um, and, and about the most laid-back individual you'll ever want to be around. But when I'm teaching, I'm a, I'm a teacher, I'm an educator. And when I sink my teeth into truth, I drill down. And so I try to smile and I forget because I just get into my mode. So if it looks like, dude, he's like angry. I'm not. I'm just passionate, okay? So if my brow is furrowed, I'm just concentrating, okay? So is that cool? All right, very good. Part two, God's good order for leadership in the church. What I want to do is very quickly summarize the learning points. All these are available on the blog for you. Um, but I want to do a quick rundown of the learning points we saw from the passages we looked at last week. Um, first learning point we looked at was these elders were apparently responsible for the welfare of the church. And with the apostles under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they made decisions about doctrine And the moral and ethical lives of the people in the church. So the elders responsibility is to care for the doctrinal integrity. And the moral standing of the people. Morality matters. I think one of the problems in a context sometimes. uh, The gospel context. Which I think unfortunately many men have made a lot of money on the gospel. And I'm not not faulting them for that. That's, That's okay. But the gospel is a hot topic in evangelical Christianity and to the positive 
Uh, and, and, and to, I think, our shame, we have de-emphasized morality to some degree as though morality doesn't matter. Um, when in fact, the truth is, the gospel, we don't get God's righteousness by being moral. But when we do receive God's righteousness by faith, it produces morality. And so therefore, morality is not to be avoided. And so the doctrinal integrity and the moral integrity of the people of God matter. And so therefore, the elders are responsible in overseeing those things. Another learning point we saw is in these churches that they appointed several elders. That is, there was not the CEO guy who was top down and he oversaw everybody. There wasn't one guy, wasn't a senior pastor model. But they appointed several elders and there were multiple elders, all of them on an equal plane, serving that role. We also saw that the elders' installation was by appointment, not election. Um, And you'll find that consistent throughout the New Testament text. We also saw that the appointing of elders for the church was through prayer and fasting. And as they prayed and fasted and committed them to the Lord, Paul was committing the people of God to the Lord through those elders that had been appointed. And this is significant um, because the Lord rules his people through appointed elders. And that is significant. It's clear we learned in another learning point that from Paul's term overseer that it's synonymous with shepherd. And it's synonymous with elder. And since the congregation is pictured as a flock... He equates the word pastor with elder. And he does this in Ephesians 4.11. So that when we look at the terms pastor, elder, and overseer in the New Testament, they are synonymous, describing three sort of functions within pastoral ministry. Another learning point we saw last week was the elders and overseers and pastors are ministers of the word and are responsible for feeding the people with preaching. And this is a point I didn't drill down so much on and probably probably should have spent a little more time on and administering using the scriptures the management of God's people is as vital as the preaching to God's people because in managing God's people administration it's a gift of the Holy Spirit to administer we have several men who are gifted administrators I am not one of them therefore I do not have any charge or thing even remotely relating to managing anything because I'm horrible at it And so administering, using the scriptures as the framework by which people manage is vital. And so the elder overseer to minister the word, preaching, that's kind of what I'm wired to do and others of our guys are wired to do. And some administering, managing, and leading according to the scriptures. And that is their function. Another learning point we saw last week is the Holy Spirit appoints elders. And that became clear in Acts 13, 1 to 3. And through prayer, fasting, and worship, it was clear what the Holy Spirit was doing and appointing men and giving them a desire to fulfill that role. The only way you can have a desire to do the job of pastor, elder, and overseer is for it to be given by the work of the Holy Spirit. It is abnormal to want to do this. It just is. And so therefore, it's a work of the Spirit of God through prayer and fasting and adhering to the Scriptures. And the Holy Spirit is the appointer of those good desires. And isn't He that way in everything? Psalm 37, 4, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you, put in you the desires of your heart. If you have a holy desire, 
It's put there by the Spirit of God. You know what the will of the Lord is? What that holy desire in your heart is? Go run hard. Go after it. It's not complicated. It's not hard to find. God's purpose for you is not hiding behind a rock and you've got to search for it. It is that desire of the heart that makes Jesus big and makes you happy and serves the people of God and the Great Commission. What a glorious thing that is. So it is the Spirit's job to appoint. And then learning point, the last learning point from last week is in that same text, Acts 20, 25, there were a large number. It wasn't just a few. It was obviously more than one. But we see in Acts 20, 25 that it is a large number of pastors, elders, overseers in this context. Um, Paul calls them together from Ephesus and there, there was a larger number of them. And we made the point last week, as the Spirit appoints men, the purpose is not stockpiling them, but rather continuing the advance of the church of Jesus Christ and sending out new churches. And we saw this also in Acts 13. There were many teachers there at Antioch. And the Spirit set apart these guys for the missionary journey, Barnabas and Paul, and thus they went out. So as God appoints men in a fellowship, they are not for stockpiling for later. They are not to be shepherds in waiting. They are for the sending out of the kingdom of God in the church. And so therefore, as the Lord would do that work in us, we pray that he would equip and send, that we might fill the waste places with the people of God so that they will know he is the Lord. Well, we'll pick up from there this week. And and point number four is this. It's a question. How about the elders in Paul's actual writings? So what we've done is we've looked at this, this teaching in the scriptures about pastor, elder, overseer, and all the different writings. But what about them in Paul's actual writings? Well, in Paul's writings, the title for elder for a church leader occurs only three times. Now, these three occurrences are 1 Timothy 5.17, 5.19, and then Titus 1.5. And keeping in mind the nature of these pastoral letters, they are the last letters Paul wrote. And it reflects a situation many years after the first missionary journey. Unlike his other letters, they are addressed to individual men and spell out some of their duties. So let's look at these passages. Titus 1, 5-9. Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, a husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he might be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. One of the first things we notice here is that Paul uses the term elder and overseer to reference the same people. Once again, showing that pastor, elder, overseer are synonymous terms. Also in Acts, the emphasis falls on the ministry of the word. Also here, as in Acts, the emphasis falls on the ministry of the word. The elder, the overseer, the pastor should be grounded in doctrine. As verse 9 says, he should be grounded in doctrine. should be grounded in the teachings of scripture. And be able then to give instruction in sound doctrine. Also to rebuke those who contradict it. There is no shortage of people who want to contradict the teaching of scriptures. Even inside the church. 
It is amazing how superimposed standards and values of a world system get brought in as truths to be reflected inside the body of Christ. And Jesus just didn't make it that way. And so there should be the ability to give instruction in sound doctrine and then rebuke those. Not accept them. Not be okay with them. Not let them remain, but rebuke and correct those who contradict what is sound. And then beyond that, nothing is said about the task of the elder. The pastor, elder, and overseer, here's our next learning point, must be well grounded in Christian doctrine and be able to give instruction in that doctrine and even able to correct those who are contrary. This is a lifetime pursuit. One of the things I love about the men God is raising up in our fellowship is not all of them are seminary graduates. Some of us are. And I want to make this point abundantly clear. There is no mandate in Scripture for a person to be a seminary graduate. I thank God for my training at Southwestern. I thank God for my master's degree. I'm thankful for it. I'm proud of it. I have aspirations for a PhD at at some time, if the Lord would allow. But it is not mandated. It is not required. They must recognize, we must recognize that it is a lifetime pursuit to know the doctrines of Scripture and we will spend our lives learning, correcting ourselves. Listen, there is no pastor alive today who has fully arrived and has fully comprehended the full nature and scope of the truths of Scripture. Any pastor must tell you we are constantly learning, self-correcting and growing in our understanding of Scripture. And let me say this about your role. Your role is to allow for that. Your role is to recognize they are not perfect. We are all together children of God in the gospel, belonging to Jesus Christ, and we're all learning. And if we read the scriptures with any sense of honesty, we will recognize we're always self-correcting, always recognizing, man, I don't think I read that right. I think I missed that. I think I missed the mark on that. And we are all there. And so therefore, pastors, those God is raising up, those who think you may have that desire put in you by the Spirit of God, recognize, recognize, it's not a statement that you must be there today. It is a lifetime pursuit that when you go to the text, you recognize, oh my gosh, I don't think I got that right five years ago. I think I need to understand that better. I think I need to correct my course So don't feel intimidated. You're like, I don't get all of that. Grudem all the way down doesn't make sense to me. I don't get eschatology. That's okay. I don't either. One day I'm an amillennialist. The next week I'm a historical classical premillennialist. It just depends. And so, and you're like, I have no clue what he just said. I think he spoke Greek. It's okay. It's a lifetime pursuit. But the pastor, elder, overseer has to be grounded. And here's the grounding. The grounding is we are grounded to the Word. And we're willing to obey the Word. And you know, that will bring persecution. The good news about persecution for Christians in the States is it's not physical. It's just verbal. It's sniping. It's mild forms of rebellion. It's the superimposing of human world systems on top of God's kingdom. And the constant need to fight against those tides of a fallen culture and a fallen world that will not last. So pastors, those God may be raising up 
This is a lifetime pursuit. None of us have arrived. And we'll continually be growing in our understanding of Scripture and the implications of what is there. Verse 6 to 8 here gives the requirements one should meet in order to be a pastor, elder, overseer. In his public life, he should be above reproach. Doesn't mean he doesn't fail. We'll look at these more in detail next week in 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7. It doesn't mean he doesn't make mistakes. Nobody's perfect. It means that when he makes mistakes, he's willing to admit it and willing to self-correct and willing to move forward. But he must be above reproach or above blame. His marriage and family should be exemplary. I'm going to say this personally. I default to my wife and my children. I made a vow on July 31st, 1999 in College Chapel, Barry College, Georgia. 104 degrees, no air in College Chapel at that moment in time. I made a vow to the Lord. And that vow to the Lord, I made the vow to my wife as well, that ministry would never come before her or any child God would give us. And I've messed up a lot of things. I've screwed up a lot of things. But to this day, that vow has never been broken and it never will be. She, they come before you. It will always be that way right here. And for any man God raises up out of this fellowship, it will be demanded of you that ministry not trump that family. Men, it's your job as priests and heads of your households to lead. And lead well. And not be dependent on the pastor, elder, overseer to lead your family. That's your job. And so therefore none of these men will ever take your place. That's not their job. So they are to make sure their marriage and their family life are exemplary. I paid a price for that by the way. That cost me a lot in Texas. Cesarean, Gabriel early, wife can't get out of bed. You wouldn't believe the junk I took because I stayed home to make sure my wife could eat and get up rather than doing something, quote, ministerial. Marriage and family should be exemplary, meaning he makes a vow to make sure he's the priest of his home first. His character should be that of spiritual maturity. Note again, very important, these requirements are essential. We'll look more at them next week. Uh, the next passage, First Timothy 5, 17 and 19. Note again here, just, just, I have it in my notes and I just skipped over it. Note again here in the Titus passage though that these men are appointed. Paul told Titus to go, Crete, finish this work and appoint these men. So it was responsibility of Titus under the leadership of the Spirit, to recognize those men the Spirit had called out by desire and appoint them to go and serve in the shepherding role. First Timothy five seventeen and 19. We'll take them together. Um, in chapter 5, verse 3 through 16, Paul describes the procedures to follow in caring for widows in the church. Real widows... That is, godly older women who have no relatives to care for them are to be supported by the church. And that is how widows are honored. Then in verse 17, he switches from the widow to the elder. 
And in verse 17 and 18, Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor at preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Quoting Deuteronomy 25, 4. And then quoting, and this is, uh, last week I promised you a little New Testament nerddom nugget. Here it is. He quotes Luke 10, 7. Why that's important here in just a second. And he says, the laborer deserves his wages. That's a quote of Luke ten seven. This is a carryover from the Levitical ministry. Levites received no inheritance from the land and were to be supported by the tithes so that they could live and function in serving the people as the father's representatives. Here's your little New Testament nerddom here. When Paul quotes Luke ten seven, this indicates that Luke, the gospel of Luke, was already in circulation by the early 60s A.D. Do you, need, do you know why that might be important? You know what's the History Channel? Ever? That these New Testament documents are second century. They're written by people after, way after the, the apostles' death and these disciples' death, these eyewitnesses' death to validate the claims of the church. Paul's quoting Luke before he dies in the early 60s. Meaning Luke was already written. You, you fought, you, does anybody see the New Testament nerd? Why that's important? Luke was already in circulation. This is not a second century document. It's fully written by eyewitnesses in the first century. And we'll deal with this in the worldview class on the, the, the accuracy and reliability of the biblical text. If you ever doubted, don't doubt. This bad boy is bibliographically, historically, archaeologically accurate and trustworthy. So, glory. That, that's fun. That's my teacher coming out and my nerddom. Hmm. So, before AD 70, before AD 70, Luke was writing and his work was in circulation. History... Always destroys liberal theology. The text destroys liberal theologies. Here's our learning point. The appointment to elder, overseer, pastor was an installation to a sacred calling that was performed by the laying on of hands. 1 Timothy 5.22 and Acts 13.3 The end of this ministry of the Spirit to give desires to men to lead God's people came with the installation of them to ministry by putting hands on them, demonstrating that one recognizes their calling and the reception of this task. Another learning point, the pastor, elder, overseer should not labor without receiving some reward from their labor. We'll deal with that more when we get to chapter 5 later. Um, but that's, that is there in the text following the Levitical ministry. Number four, what about elders in the non-Pauline churches? There were other churches Paul didn't plant, right? What about them? There are a number of uses of the title elder outside of Paul's writings. In the book of Revelation, the term occurs 12 times with reference to the 24 elders in heaven. There's not much written on the identity of who these dudes are, except there's some sort of angelic host. My notes, this isn't really appropriate right now, but I'm going to go ahead and stay with it. Does that make pastors angel beasts? I meant that positively, but no, I don't think so. Uh, that'd be kind of cool if that were the case, but that's not the case. That's a little 
extra biblical, so just ignore that and pretend like that was not in the notes. Second and third John begin with the designation. Second and third John's another place, begin with the designation, the elder to. And so John John identifies himself as an elder writing to a group of people. It's believed John is the author. I believe John's the author of second and third John and first John. Um, and it's well known and so well known that he just recognizes their knowing him as the elder. So what about another passage? James 5, 13 to 15. James says, speaking about the place this term elder shows up, he says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, the point isn't here to unpack everything that means. I'll give you a quick summary. I think that does mean that when we gather, if someone says, come and pray, we anoint them with oil. We wait for the gift of faith to be given, if it will be given, that this person will be made well. And the prayer offered in that gift of faith will heal them. And so I think that's what that means, and that's arguable, but just little free nugget there for you if you want to go read that. Here's the point. Here's the learning point. Elders have a practical ministry of prayer for those who are sick to see if the gift of faith may be given that one may be healed through the prayer. And even notice here, though, it's not just if the gift of faith may be given, but even that sins may be uncovered and repented of. I really want to rabbit trail that, but I need to stay on task. But it, the point is, it's a practical ministry of pastors. If you're sick, let us know. If you just can't get over the hump and you're continually sick, we'd love to come pray for you and anoint you and ask that the gift of faith would be given, that we could pronounce over you a healing in the name of the Lord. I know that's probably a little too uncomfortable for some of our Baptist folks, but that's just what the text says. And so therefore we trust that also if sins need to be uncovered and repented of, the Lord will make that clear as well. Another place in the non-Pauline churches is 1 Peter 5, 1-4. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. You notice here John and Peter refer to themselves as fellow elders, but they're at the same time apostles. This isn't in the notes. This is my opinion here. The gift of apostleship, this is my opinion, okay, just my opinion. You've got to go to the text and figure out where you, are, where you are here. I think the gift of apostleship, it appears the appointing of apostles by Jesus were those who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. I don't know if there are any more eyewitnesses of the resurrection around today. So I'm uncomfortable using the title apostle in the church. That's just me, Okay. But notice what, and here's, here's why I bring this up. Peter and John refer to themselves also as what? Elder. Meaning, in their apostleship as eyewitnesses, they fulfilled the role of elder. And when they died, they had appointed elders who would succeed them in that role. So just, I exhort you, the elder, I exhort, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. 
Peter calls himself an elder, although he is also an apostle. As I said, this does not mean there is no distinction between elders and apostles. For this unique period of time, the apostolic office overlapped with that of elder. And Peter refers to this in his elder status in order to illustrate the very point he is making. Namely, he does not want the Lord, or he does not want to lord it over the elders, but by example and exhortation to help them fulfill their calling. The main point of these verses here is to instruct the elders how. How? How to exercise authority? What does Peter say? Well, learning point, 1 Peter 5, 2. How are they to exercise that authority? Not under compulsion. Meaning the pastor, elder, overseer is to make sure that they are not being forced to act, but rather are acting in desire. You can't do this unless there's a great desire in the heart pushing you to do it. Because it is hard. You walk around with a target on you. You become the object of everyone's scorn. Even those who are well-meaning. And so the desire has to trump any sense of honor you think you're going to get. So Peter says, make sure that you oversee not under compulsion, but willingly. Another learning point on how they are to exercise oversight is 1 Peter 5, 2 as well, he says, not for shameful gain. The pastor, elder, overseers are not doing what they do because they're getting rich. Rather, they're doing this work eagerly. The eager nature of the pastor, elder, overseers because they are joining with Christ and doing his shepherding work of guiding through teaching, leading, and managing his people, not because they're gaining socioeconomic advantage. 1 Peter 5.3, how are they to exercise oversight? He says, not domineering over those in your charge. The pastor, elder, overseers are to set an example in hopes that the chief shepherd would move his people to follow the example of the under-shepherds. The idea of not domineering means not demanding people, but setting an example for them. Meaning, the pastor, elder, overseers to set the pace ministerially, morally, theologically. They are to be the ones who folks look to and go, gosh, I want to do that. Oh, they're doing that. Let me do it like they did it. And so the idea is they are to set an example in hopes that Jesus, who is called the chief shepherd, would move his people to see the need and follow the example that was set for them. My prayer is, and there is a movement happening here, y'all. God is stirring in people to be adopters of those who need moms and dads. The barriers are still too high. I'm talking with Eric before the service unnecessary barriers they're not legal barriers they're just there they're just assumptions and so may is national foster care awareness month and mary margaret mauer is going to be making some clear announcements about how we can pray because here's what we've decided to do let's just pray and right now it appears that what god is doing is he's knocking down barriers 
And as the barriers get lower, my hunch is there's a ton of you that God is looking into your heart and giving you desires. And the barriers are so high that the barriers have a tendency to put the desire down. And as God breaks down the barriers, my hunch is there's going to be a movement among the people of God to take those 200 plus kids in our town who don't have moms and dads and be permanent homes for them. That example has been set for you. We don't demand that you go adopt or foster, but we say, look how cool it is when I get to beat my child. Right? You're like, oh God, Jolly's screaming at his kid again. The one that obviously doesn't look like him. Wow. Some of you saw me screaming at him earlier. But you know what? My prayer is, by bringing it continually to your attention, as you see these precious children that God has put in our fellowship, that you would take that example and that Chief Shepherd Jesus would move His people. Wouldn't it be cool if Radical Kids was, fi- was filled with adopted kids? That'd be awesome. Another learning point on how they to exercise oversight is this is pretty cool. It's a promise. The promise to these pastors, elders, overseers is that they will receive glory. He says the crown of glory from the chief shepherd when he returns. I'm not exactly sure what that glory is. Can I be nerd for a moment? The of, the word of is a fascinating grammatical piece of art. It's glorious. And and, and, and in Greek it can have like multiple feels to it. And, and one of them is the genitive. Oh, I love being a nerd. I just love being a teacher. It's the genitive. And, 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 and it's this of relationship. And the, a positive genitive defines. Meaning each word on either side of the of defines one another. Okay, But there are other ways it can be used too. It's not always an apposition. Right? So when I read this, I'm not exactly sure where it is. I played with it in the language and it's, it's kind of unclear. But the promise, and this is for us, Pastor Elder, if, if, or those God's putting this desire in your heart. The promise to these who are underneath the authority of Chief Shepherd Jesus, seeking to be under shepherds of Christ to His people, is that they will receive the crown of glory. I don't know exactly what that glory is. I don't know... If it's a physical crown, it may be a physical crown, which I'm not too jacked up about that. I'm not a jewelry guy. Maybe I will be in the kingdom, and maybe the crown will be cool, and I get to wear it like cock sideways, Lecrae, and he'll be hanging out in the kingdom. He's like, what's up? I finally got my... It may be a physical crown. I don't know, and it'll say glory across it. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it will be along the lines of Jesus' parables when he talked about he who was faithful with little will be given much in the kingdom that is to come. And and Jesus taught us to live for eternal reward now. He taught all Christians, not just pastors, elders, overseers, but all Christians to live in a fashion now that they will receive reward in the coming kingdom. In other words, live for the reward. You're going to get rewarded. It might not happen here. But one day when Christ returns, He will take those who've been faithful with little and put them in charge of much. Did He not say that? And so could it just be that, that those God puts a desire 
to have a target on them their whole lives. That God may just, if they're faithful with it, they steward it well. Then in the kingdom, we get put in charge of much. And then we'll be able to handle it. Because we all are terrible now. We can't manage our, I can't manage my way out of a paper bag. But one day, one day, Chief Shepherd, if I have been faithful, will put me in charge of much and I'll be able to deal with it. That kind of makes me excited for heaven, right? That the kingdom of heaven, by the way, heaven's a beautiful thing in the Bible. It's not like, you know, we've talked about that before. It's pretty stinking cool. New heaven, the new earth, no sin. We talked about that when we studied through Revelation. And so the promise to these under-shepherds is that they will receive the crown of glory when Jesus returns. And He will return and we will be held accountable for how we manage God's people. This is not a free ride. And so you manage God's people with fear and trembling. Learning point, and it's the final learning point. Jesus is the pattern for the elder overseer pastor. This is seen clearly not only from the illusion, illusion, not illusion, illusion to his earthly teaching in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, but also from 1 Peter 2, 25. In this passage, Peter says, and here's the quote for you, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Meaning these people... Peter is writing to were straying, but they have repented and returned to Jesus, the chief shepherd who oversees their souls. Jesus is the chief shepherd, as chapter 5, verse 4 says, but he's also the chief overseer, chapter 2, verse 25, and he is the chief elder. So one of the reasons we don't have that title in our fellowship. The chief pastor, senior pastor is Jesus. He's the chief shepherd. Everybody else that Spirit has put that desire in their heart are just simply overseers, pastors, elders underneath the chief shepherd Jesus. This is the highest statement that can be made of the role of elder in the church. It is a summons from Christ Himself by His Spirit to do His work under Him in His likeness and for His sake and as best I can tell from all these occurrences in the Bible that we've looked at for two weeks that defines pastor elder overseer next week we're going to take a look at chapter 3 verse 1 to 7 and deal with the character qualifications but this week I want to close with four quick little observations and they're there for you to look at unless more may come to mind as we're walking through these. Number one, how good of God to give us such a good order? How good of God to give us such a good order? He didn't leave us without instruction. He gave us instruction. He made it clear. As I say, it's in the manual. How good of God to give it to us. How foolish when we don't obey it. How foolish when we take models created by a world system that is contrary to God and His kingdom and superimpose them on top of the kingdom of God. Could it be that that is quenching the Spirit? Could it be that when Paul told the believers 
not to quench the Spirit of God that by taking models other than those in Scripture that we are, we are in an effort to do better or actually doing worse because we're quenching the Spirit moving among His people to put desires in men's hearts to lead? One of the greatest barriers to men following Christ Jesus in pastoral ministry are models built on a governmental system contrary to Scripture in which the CEO spends his life getting toasted with nobody to have his back. The average tenure of a pastor in our denomination is two years. And why? Because he spends his life getting shot at. And his wife falls apart. And his children hate the gospel. In order to survive, they quit. Why do we do that? It's in the manual. It's in the manual. There is a system in which it doesn't have to be a guy. It doesn't have to be two guys. It could be as many guys as God would put in their heart. And when you got an overabundance, you just plant another church. That's what they did in Acts. You know what's crazy? That is so hard for us to do because we don't think biblically. We ran into a cat in Minneapolis a few months ago from India. And how many churches has he planted? You remember Emmett? It's totally off the cuff. This cat has nothing and he's planted 50-something churches. Runs an orphanage in his own home. In India. And we can't even plant a church in the States without denominational approval. 27 background psychological evaluations and we can't even adopt the kids in our town, much less plant 50, so all these, who knows? Man, it's in the manual. If we just did it God's way, we'd recognize and men would see this is not a burden that's too hard to bear. And that desire God put in my heart is good and real and it's doable by God's help. How good of God to give us such an order. Isn't that awesome? Imagine what would happen in the States if, if, and there are some denominations who figured this out. Thank God for some good Presbyterians and some good other folks <coughs> to give us this good order and to see it modeled. By the way, you want to see this modeled? Study the church in the East. Study the church in the East. Pastors from the East are people that I really, really appreciate because they get this. They do this on a regular basis. And you know what's crazy? In a communal context, this makes sense. In an individualistic context where the model of a business rules, this is just absolutely mind-blowing. People can't figure out how they do it. This is why the church is exploding at unheard-of rates in China Indonesia, India, and declining in the West. How good of God to give us such a good order. The commercialization of the pastorate. The commercialization and the deification and the celebrity status of pastors in the West is contrary to the kingdom of God and contrary to the Beatitudes. God gave us a good order. There's one who deserves the press and he is chief shepherd, Jesus. Beyond that, being known is irrelevant. 
Number two, how good of God to give us His leading and His leading of us as the example of how we are to lead His people. God has been so good to give us Himself as the example of leading His people. You know a great image? If you don't read your Old Testament, this stuff falls on deaf ears. And it falls on, on blank understanding. When you read the Old Testament, you see these beautiful images of God being a shepherd to His people, a husband to His people. Being mighty over His people. Being tender over His people. Bringing judgment, right judgment on His people. Justice leading and guiding them into the way of life. How good of God to give us His leading as the example of how we are to lead His people. Look at Jesus. What a glorious model. One minute taking a look at Peter and calling him Satan. The next minute reinstalling him to his apostolic ministry. Rebuking, encouraging. Number three, how good of God to give us a record of his instruction so we'd know what to do. Isn't it so cool that this thing's trustworthy? And he gave us a record of what to do. Just read it and obey it. How good of God to do such a thing. And then finally, how good of God to have rewarded the faithful administration of His Word with an abundance of pastors, elders, and overseers. How good of God to do that work in us. As, as, as Emmett shared with you last week, and we've been sharing along the way the men God is raising up in this fellowship. How good of God to put that desire in men. Do you Listen, this is craziness, man. When people ask about our church and we tell them this kind of stuff, it blows their mind. These are guys just out of our church. They didn't send us resumes and come to us from the outside. These are men who've been here among you that God has put a desire in their heart to help and to shepherd God's people. How good of God to do such a thing. You remember I said this last week. What does it say about a fellowship when men from the inside cannot be raised up to lead and men must be brought in from the outside? He gave us the instruction. And how good of God to reward this fellowship with an abundance of men and other men waiting in the wings. Guys, I'm telling you, that's a work of the Spirit of God. And we are graced to see that happening among us. How glorious of God to do such an awesome thing. Do you think He deserves our worship? Do you think he deserves to be adored for those kind of things? Oh, yes, he does. He does. He's been good to do these things for us. And we want to make much of him. So let's pray and let's worship together.